Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And I'm Mike Turner, Corporate Bonds Editor. Have no fear, Ralph Sinclair will be back next week. But even without him, today we'll be bringing you a taste of the action in capital markets and of things to come. Quite nasty things, apparently. A bit later, we'll be talking to Frank Jackman from our Financial Institutions Bond team about the huge black clouds building up on the horizon for Europe's banking sector, which foretell a storm in the bond market, and, unless we are very lucky, serious pain for companies and households too. The curious thing is, as Bill Thornhill and Atanas Dinov, who wrote this story, explain, these clouds are being whipped up by deliberate actions of governments and central banks. And we'll be talking to Georgie Lee, our public sector bond reporter, about the elusive greenium, the amount of money issuers can save by issuing green bonds instead of normal bonds, because the green bonds have an extra attraction for investors. That greenium appears to be slipping through issuers' fingers. But first, the equity market, where there's good news, in that, as our equity capital markets editor Aidan Gregory reported, this week some IPOs are finally getting done. Yes, yeah, so things seem to be turning around in the EMEA ECM market. Um, it has had a really, really tough year, but as you say, some IPOs are coming. So, John, can you explain what's happened this week? Yes, so Schott Pharma, which is a German company that makes medical glassware, has had a good and successful IPO. It's a big deal, 813 million euros, the biggest in Western Europe this year. And But above all, it's gone well. Um, the, the shares were priced well and they've risen 11% at first after the company began trading in Frankfurt. So that's what everyone was hoping. There are some other deals in the market. Renk, which is a German company that makes gearboxes for defense vehicles, and Planisware, a French software company, uh, which, which are planning to bring IPOs soon. And th- the success of those deals will be greatly made more likely by, by shot going well. Um, and there are some other deals that could come to market um, if, if things continue well, such as DKV Mobility, which is a, a fleet car services company in Germany. And Shop Farmers IPO doing well, that, that came when the market was looking much more ropey, right? Well, it's true that on a sort of day-to-day basis, the market has weakened in, in this week and, and was somewhat unsettled by the Federal Reserve last week. It held interest rates, but the market's interpretation was that basically um, that rates were going to stay higher for longer. And, and there, there was some disappointment about that. But overall, um, the IPO market is, is, is in much better shape this side of the summer than it was earlier in the year. So what are we reckoning? Do we think that uh, it's all go for EMEA IPOs again now? Far from all go, no. It's a sort of gradual and tentative recovery. Aidan spoke to Torsten Pauli, who's uh, does equity capital markets for the German-speaking region at Bank of America, and he said it will take some time and increased activity for investors to get more comfortable, but there are signs of green shoots. We will hopefully be back into a proper IPO season next year. So it's a sort of fragile recovery. But I think the interesting thing that Aidan focused on this week was the fact that even if all of this goes well, it's still going to be a dire year when we get to the end of it for IPO revenue for banks and, you know, much down on what what they're used to making. 
So are IPOs an important earner for banks in the equity yes. market then? Because they're difficult deals, you're introducing a new company to the market and they're risky and often they don't succeed. The fees are quite high. Um, about one and a half percent is typical for an IPO for the banks. So and if they're doing a block trade where they sell shares in the evening, uh, you know, large packet of shares, these can be large or larger than IPOs in, in actual size, but the fees are much lower. Something like 0.3% is, is common. So um, for banks to have a profitable year in, in equity capital markets, they really need the IPO market to go well. And, you know, one banker told Aidan that on average, leaving aside 2021, when it was a particularly big market, um, the fee pool for European IPOs is somewhere between 600 million and 700 million euros normally a year. Um, and, you know, that's about a quarter of the total fee pool for equity capital markets in the region, which is around 2.3 billion to 2.4 billion. So how has uh, fee generation been this year? Well, using data from Logic, in the first nine months of 2023, up to September the 14th, banks in this region made $327 million of net revenue from IPOs. That's their Dealogic estimate based on a pretty accurate model that they have. Now that's down from $486 million in the same period of 2022. And I think it's probably worth, it's worth mentioning as well that 2022 was a real down year for uh, IPOs. Yeah, it too. wasn't a great year, exactly. And it, I mean, to show how high it can be in 2021, uh, which was a boom year, they made 2.6 billion. So there's a real drop off in the amount of fees that banks have earned then, but also I guess indicates that there's also a lot of potential there. So banks are going to be striving to, to get there again. But in the meantime, until IPOs come back in a meaningful way, how else have banks been making their uh, ECM fees? Unfortunately, one of the other products that, that they tend to do well on is rights issues. And there haven't been many of them either this year. So as one senior equity capital markets banker put it, the fee environment has been pretty terrible. Now, Mike, you've been writing about the corporate debt market this week, where there's an interesting development and what could be potentially even a new market of direct lending to investment grade companies. Now, what is direct lending? So direct lending is when institutional investors essentially take the place of banks and provide a loan to a company. This money would traditionally come from a syndicate of banks getting together and sharing the risk and loaning that way, um, or even money from the bond market. So when direct lending comes into a market, it, it sort of nibbles away at how much a company would, needs to borrow from other sources. And direct lending we've become familiar with in the low-grade uh, corporate market, haven't we, in the leveraged finance market, where it's, it's grown rapidly in the last couple of years. But why are they now looking at investment-grade companies? Yeah, so in the high-yield market or in the junk-rated market, um, that's where it really, really took off after the global financial crisis. Um, and the reason for that is because there were you know, great returns and there was so much liquidity in the market that, that typically companies weren't really going bankrupt. So direct lenders, institutional investors could lend this money and be fairly confident they were going to get it back. But now that uh, rates have risen, there's two factors at play. Firstly, investment grade companies are now paying high enough returns on their debt that direct lenders can you know, start to make a meaningful um, return from lending to those companies. Whereas during the uh, 
central banks, largesse and central banks putting a lot of money into the system, the returns were much lower from investment grade companies. And also the default rate uh, among junk rated companies is is rising meaningfully, meaning that you know, there's a much higher chance that you won't get your money back if you give it to one of these companies. So that means that investment grade companies, the best rated corporates in Europe, are now really looking quite attractive to institutional investors. And you spoke to a couple of them this week, didn't you? What, what did they tell you? I did, and they were they were crazy bullish on on lending to uh, IG corporates. They were really, really looking into it and trying to find new ways they could do it. And from what the discussions that I had, it wasn't just a case of them going out and pitching ideas to companies and trying to drum up business that way. But there were also a increase in companies coming to them and you know exploring their options of of raising money and they they see it as a real growth area for their investments it's a bit puzzling isn't it because one thinks of you know investment grade companies in europe are probably one of the most thoroughly banked and you know lavishly provided with financial services parts of the economy um you know banks are all over them they're competitive you know why do they why is there room for a new kind of lender to to lend to these companies yeah, I, there's a few a few elements. So, yes, if you have an IG rating, generally banks want to, you know, bend over backwards to do things for you because they can then get all of the ancillary business you might do, the bond mandates or the, uh, you know, equity activity that you might have. But even within that, there are some, you know, serious issues. The real estate market, for example, has had real trouble accessing the bond markets, the public bond markets, um, and banks are becoming more hesitant to lend down the investment grade rating spectrum, becoming more hesitant to lend to cyclical names that are more affected by um, shifts in the economy. Uh, and what this means is that these these companies that are in these sort of out of favour sectors are looking at the way they can raise funds and trying to see if there's other ways that they can supplement um, the money they can get. And then on top of that, you've got things like the bank market rarely lends beyond five years. Um, it's a popular structure is five plus one plus one, which means you get to five years and then you can extend as long as everyone agrees by another year and then you can do that again. Um, so for a maximum of seven years. But in the private lending market, uh, institutional investors don't turn their noses up at a 30 year deal or a 25 year deal. And that's when you really start competing with bond market uh, maturities as well. So basically the direct lenders are claiming to offer things that, that the other kinds of lenders don't different structures, different maturities. And presumably, though, they want to be paid more. Yeah, of course they do. They It's similar to the US private placement market in, the, uh, in that there is a illiquidity premium. So when these direct lenders agree to these deals, they do it on the basis that they will hold this deal until it matures. They're not going to sell it or, you know, be able to get up, get out of the position. Um, and what that means is they charge slightly more, but they can, well, they at least the way they market themselves is that they can put deals together quicker than a syndicate of banks can um and and and, you know this maturity thing is can prove to be quite a big deal until now really where where uh, direct lending has made itself known in investment grade is in projects so specific project financing um or companies with very real assets that need financing over a very long period but now it's it's the argument that these credit investors that i've been speaking to the argument they're putting forward is that uh, investment grade companies are coming to them for much more run-of-the-mill mm. funding. So, Mike, this new group of lenders, very gung-ho, is lining its sights up on European companies. 
are the people in the bank market, the, the bank loan market and the bond market worried? Uh, in the bond market, people aren't worried at all. To be honest, when I was calling around, they hadn't even heard of it as being a thing that could inf- uh, impact the companies they deal with. Um, they are confident there is enough demand for bond market access um, for for it not to be an issue. Um, and in the loan market, when I've been speaking to loans bankers, they tell me that they are desperate for deals and you know really eager to put money to work. And then frequently in the same breath that, oh no, but we don't lend to this sort of company. We don't lend to that kind of company or companies in this sector, um, which implies that there is a sort of niche for direct lending to slip into where it will provide a service that isn't being provided elsewhere. However, this is also what happened in the high yield market. And now direct lending is a major, major part of the high yield leverage finance market. So, you know, I guess there is the potential um, the numbers are just much bigger mm. in investment grade than they are in in high yield, which kind of puts a stopper on it. Though private credit guys tell me that they, when I say private credit guys, I mean investors tell me that they can, you know, they provided deals of hundreds of thousands up to um, a billion plus. So you know, there is there's definitely a source of competition there. It'll be definitely be an interesting market to watch over the coming months. Now, in a moment, we're going to be hearing from Georgie Lee, our SSA reporter, about the Greenium. So, Georgie, there has been some shenanigans in the SSA market when it comes to the Greenium. Can you explain what's been happening there, please? Yeah. Hi. Um, so yeah, this week um, there were some green bond deals in the in the SSA market, um, and when these deals come, the focus uh, tends to be on how much um, the issuer saves versus um, issuing in a sort of conventional format. And so uh, there are a couple of deals. KFW kind of brought its third green bond in euros this year, uh, a seven year, raising three billion. Um, and it was quite difficult to, to calculate the the green but the the issuer said that um, at landing it saw about two basis points which was actually uh, an uptick from its kind of average of one basis point uh, on its sort of green deals so far this year. So so the the Greenium still exists then does it for sovereign supranational agency issuers they can still get a benefit? Yes I think the overarching sort of resolve is that this year it has what the market says is that it has been declining but that you know, as evidence from uh, deals this week, is there. It's just, it's just quite small. It's kind of fascinating because in other markets, it looks to have vanished completely in the primary market when it comes to printing new deals. Um, there's, there's very little, if any, uh, benefit for printing green bonds over um, conventional bonds when it comes to the curve. I'm thinking particularly the corporate market, which is the one that I cover. Um, mm. So, so if if the greenium is vanishing. Or, or you know, people are claiming that it's vanishing. Um, what does this mean for the way that issuers might approach the market? They're looking to the green bonds. Will it will it put them off? Do you think? I think um, I think they'll keep issuing uh, green debt because there is clearly still value um, in the secondary market, and they a lot of issuers are committed to sort of maintaining a green curve. And as we saw this week, there is there is still a cost a cost benefit. Um, it's just. A little bit small, so so I think I think there are there certainly are still still advantages. And do you think that so a, a small cost benefit 
is that being outweighed by just how volatile the rates market has been? Well, I think um, I think it's certainly difficult. When I when I spoke to some the secondary market, I spoke to an investor who said it's quite uh, difficult for them at the moment to measure the the greenium. Um, it's also it's always been difficult in primary, but that's the case in secondary as well because. While you can anticipate them, an investor might anticipate sort of three basis points of greenium rates might have moved, you know, 10 basis points on the day. So so it's it's certainly becoming with all the volatility in the market and the uncertainty um, over the path of rates, it's it's certainly becoming a little bit more challenging to sort of predict. And there was another important green bond this week from Denmark, wasn't there? Yeah, so so Denmark issued um, a green bond in its in its home currency, um, and it's kind of it's a little bit easier um, for these sovereigns um, like Denmark and also Germany who use this twin bond approach, whereby um, green bonds are are twinned with a conventional one um, with the same with the same coupon and maturity. So it was it was easier this week to see that Denmark who who issued a, a 10 year green bond um, uh, to see that it's it's greenium had been compressed a little, although it, it did achieve um, a 1.5 basis point greenium. But but um, our sort of SSA editor Addison, who, who covered the deal, noted that it had achieved five basis points greenium when it debuted so so that so it has compressed uh, and its debut was sold via auction last year so so it has come down so presumably the danish and german uh, green issuance is the most clinical and clear way to spot the greenium and, and sort of really calculate it because you've got these twin bonds which are identical in every other respect so what does the way they trade tell us about the greenium yeah so in the secondary market it does um, appear that the greenium is still kind of alive and well. So, so Germany's existing 2030-2031 green bonds were trading with approximately 1.9 basis points and 1.2 basis points of greenium, um, and that's according to, to Nordea. Um, and so, so you can see that in the in the secondary market, the the greenium does persist. Um, and the investor that I spoke to. Um, said that the greenium in the secondary market had had increased since last year, on average from from three basis points to five basis points for European sovereigns and for, for agencies since July this year. It had gone from from zero basis points to about two to three. And and why do you think that um, green bonds? Why do they trade tighter than the conventional curves? Is it to do with um, investors just liking green deals more and happy to pay more for them for the sort of feel-good factor or to have it in specific funds or is it due to supply what, what do you think the reason might be yeah I think there's a mix I think there's a mix of answers there's certainly uh, still value um, in in holding green assets and KFW's sort of head of, of capital markets I spoke to points out that it was quite evident that buyers you know know the bonds are kind of more solid in in secondary markets and therefore they are willing to pay a premium, kind of knowing knowing that they will that they'll get it back when in difficult times when they need to sell the bonds. So the green bonds maybe not pricing uh, as far through conventional curves as people expected. How much of that do you think is just due, due to market conditions? There there tends to be more greenium when when the market is good, um, and I think that's partly because investors can be concerned with with other things when when the market is 
is volatile. Um, but also what KFW pointed out to us this week was that um, investors clearly see that holding green assets still have value even when the market is tough because they are easier to trade and uh, you know when market conditions worsen that they can they can sell when they can sell the bonds if, if they need to. It's a weird dichotomy isn't it in uh, green bonds that you see across markets that green it's sort of widely accepted that green bonds take on more uh, demand because of the untapped green bond investor base but that investor base also seems to be growing increasingly price sensitive so while they're willing to put mm. in more demand and and mm. you know fill out books the greenium is vanishing so mm. it's it's a strange mix which in any other um situation if you had more demand you could push harder on pricing mm. but that doesn't seem to be the way that it's growing and shaking out in the green bond market so georgie i guess it, as the green bond market evolved over the last 10 years or so people probably thought the greenium would increase i guess and and become you know more material um that doesn't seem to be really happening or, or not to have happened yet. Um, what do people think about how it's going to evolve from here? Yeah, so um, I think uh, what I spoke to KFW, their thought was that even though they, they did see um, a slight increase in the greenium on their deal this week compared to previous deals that they've, green deals that they've done um, this year, they kind of saw that as just one data point and one instance and that um, they didn't see it pointing to sort of a longer term trend of, of greenium in, in the primary market increasing for, for issuers. Mm. So it's probably the level we have at the moment is probably about uh, as good as it's going to get unless there's some uh, change that we can't foresee. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Georgie. Thank good to you. talk to you. So, Frank, the financial institutions market in Europe. Now, the other day we were writing about how great the bond market was for banks at the moment. It's, they've had a terrific September. They've issued a lot. And the market was so good that they were beginning to do pre-funding. In other words, come to the market earlier than they would otherwise have planned to do some of the funding that they would pencil in for next year. But so, so it was an incredibly positive picture. Now, this week, our story is much darker and more negative. And that's because there are there seem to be some serious threats building up for the banking sector, don't there? Yeah, there seems a fear that there could be a deposit war, a liquidity drain affecting the bank bond market. Banks have had a great time over the last few months. They've had a great time even recently with the, uh, the higher interest rates and all this sort of excess liquidity sloshing around the system. But the talk seems that this might come to an abrupt end as sort of policymakers and uh, governments are going, going at the banks. You know, we've got the threats that might drain deposits and liquidity from these banks. And then they've already had a great time in the bond market, but they might be forced to issue even more, which, of course, will drive up their cost of funding, you know, and it's especially for a smaller, weaker banks that could not, well, it probably won't be a great thing. OK, so, Frank, you mentioned higher interest rates and liquidity. Now, when interest rates go up, banks are one of the groups that it's actually good for usually because it just means customers are paying more interest on their loans and there's just generally more opportunity for banks to make money by the gap between uh, what they lend at and what they borrow at and and that's happened um and so their their profits are generally healthy um and the net interest margin between what they're 
lending at and borrowing at has been wide. And at the same time, there's still a lot of liquidity in the system because of all the quantitative easing from from previous years, isn't there? Basically, the central banks pumped money in the trillions into the economy through the banking system. Now, you, you mentioned a deposit wall. What does that mean? One of the concerns that people have raised, and we've actually seen it at the end of last week or rumours of it, is that the retail deposits that you know customers like me and you have their cash they've got deposited at the commercial banks could be drawn out as, um, yeah, we've had a number of sovereigns offering far more attractive terms on uh, retail government bonds. Governments might be looking at taking some of these cheap deposits and offering a bit more than... Um, what banks are offering and drawing it out in size. I can go and buy a one-year gilt through um, NSNI and they'll give me 6.2%. My uh, my savings account pays two and a half. And over the summer, Belgium did a 22 billion, which I believe is a record, retail targeted bond. Uh, and they paid 3.3% coupon, attracted 600,000 investors to this deal. And it's a big concern. This has sucked a large chunk of liquidity and deposits out of the Belgian retail deposit base. So the point you're making, Frank, is that when a government issues a sh- one of these short-term retail-targeted bonds, that money that goes to invest in it has to come out of the banking deposits, right? Because it, all the cash that's used to buy the bond was in somebody's bank account. And and the point in Belgium was that $22 billion went to the Belgian government through this bond, and that came straight out of the bank's deposits. So... How have the banks reacted to that? We've had uh, one Belgian bank actually access the covered bond market quite quite swiftly after. So KBC did a one billion three year covered bond, very short, uh, which was actually its third issuance of the year. And there's talk of whether in other regions where we might see something similar, people might have to replace some of those missing deposits with um, bond issuance, be it covered or senior preferred. And presumably in that instance, investors will see that coming, so they'll turn the screws on on bank pretty much like kbc pay more yeah kbc offered a pretty pretty sizable new issue concession of eight to nine basis points for its uh covered bond you know we were seeing third of that for some deals recently so it's pretty eye-watering so it sounds like obviously governments and sovereigns are issuing these retail bonds to get money for themselves but they must be aware of the knock-on effect it's having to the bank market and to customer deposits yeah, I think, um, as we put in the article, it's a feature, not a bug. You know, we had the Belgian Prime Minister, days after the deal, say that Belgian banks will have to fight again for their customers, which is pretty pretty strong talk. In other words, there's a political anger at the banks to some extent um, and a natural wish for them to stop making as much money and a sense that perhaps they've made windfall profits from this higher interest rate scenario. Yeah, it's not just Belgium. We've also had Italy raising, um, I think it's preparing to do a BTP Valor, which is a five-year bond they're looking to do in October, which will be retail focused. You know, if you look at the debt that Italy have issued via um, the retail market, they've raised $122 billion by the end of this year, you know, and um, it's about 5.1% of all its debt. Portugal um, has gone from having $30 billion of retail instruments to $46 billion. In fact, um, you know, it that's, doesn't seem like too big an increase but researchers at ING said the last time they observed such a large share in Portugal 15.6% of the direct state debt was 2008 it's going to be sucking away some of that liquidity and people banks will then have to um, 
compete with the the retail bond market and with themselves and there's a question of whether that's going to spark a deposit war between between banks and the retail sovereign bond market and the banks themselves as they basically outdo each other to try and claw back as much of the uh deposited money as possible you know so from a from a philosophical standpoint this is a good thing right because it brings you know higher competitiveness and uh the end users will, will benefit but from a capital market standpoint do you think this will change the way that banks will need to approach the capital markets? You've mentioned the KBC had to come for a third time and pay a higher new issue premium. Do you think we'll see bank issuers come to the market you know, sooner, come to the market now rather than put it off? Or will people try and hold out to see how this shakes out? What do you think might happen there? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a split uh, depending on where you're looking. So um, people have said that if you look at Southern Europe, those places have issued retail bonds for years so the local banks might be a bit more adjustable a bit more flexible regarding the deposit flight but there are concerns that other eurozone governments could look at belgium those places where there is a less established or less sizable chunk of um, sovereign funding done by the retail bond market we might start seeing banks having to um, access the market after already having access to the market in great size this year accessing it again to issue covered bonds, senior preferred bonds, the most likely instruments, short dated and probably a bit pricey. At least if it all goes wrong and a bank becomes insolvent, a sovereign will be able to bail it out with all this new retail money it's just raised. (laughs) (laughs) So Frank, the potential deposit war is just one problem for the banks, isn't it? So the central banks are eyeing their apparent excess liquidity too, but for a different reason, wanting to reduce that. Yeah, after a, a year of steep rate hikes, um, that hasn't had much of an effect on the uh, the eurozone economy. Inflation's still rampant and flying and massively high, but we've just got so much liquidity slushing around in the banking system. And now central banks, the ECB, is thinking about how can they tackle that and perhaps draw off some of that liquidity and improve the transition transmission mechanism. And it seems that the favoured idea at the moment is by raising the minimum reserve requirement so banks in the eurozone are required to hold a certain percentage of their customer deposits short-term funding with the uh, with the central bank so at the minute that stands at one percent there was talk when we wrote the article yesterday about increasing that to three or even four percent and then robert holtzman ecb governing council member suggested that it could go as high as five to ten percent so um yeah, 1% the required minimum reserves is about 165 billion euros. You know, you increase that to 5%, that's 825 billion. You set that to 10% and you're looking at having an extra 1.5 trillion on top of what they have, which is not great for um, banks if they're going to have to find that somewhere. And this is essentially just money that sits there and does nothing, right? Yeah. Just pretty, acts as a buffer in, in terms of bad times. So the effect yeah. would mean that they have to borrow more from other sources, right? And, and that would be either deposits, which we know are becoming harder to get, or the bond market. Yeah, pretty much. They would have to issue more bonds or um, put up the deposit rates, as we mentioned, to compete with each other and with sovereign sovereign retail trades. But, um, you know, you think about those that are going to be most hit are the it's the lower high it's the lower tier banks the lower credit rated ones because they're going to end up having to pay more for higher risk premiums to sort of access or to sort of top this up and you know we don't want 
ideally banks that are shut out of the bond market we don't want banks to sort of find that their funding costs are too high so it's not going to be great for the market as a whole if we have a number of dud deals and you know if it does go to 10 percent it's 1.5 trillion that's going to come from somewhere i don't think we've i think we've had what 200 billion covered bonds last year like this that's a lot mm. so but that's not all the ecb has in store for the banks either is it frank no there's other ways to sort of get rid of this excess liquidity and the big one is active quantitative tightening yeah the ecb's got a massive five trillion portfolio of bonds that they've bought as part of their quantitative easing program and at the moment they're just sort of letting these bonds run off as they mature but there is the alternative where they actively start selling them in the market to sort of reduce that at a greater rate and that would basically lead to a widening of bond spreads and you know will decrease the value of bonds wouldn't it and make just lift interest rates essentially yeah pretty much um you know there was a, an S&P report that said that active QT in the eurozone would fuel the normalization of funding costs and net interest margins that's already underway which yeah in blunter terms mean spreads would widen and profits will sink shrink and if the European Central Bank does sell these bonds into the market, of course, people will have to buy them and the money they use to buy them will come out of bank accounts, won't it? So that, again, will suck money out of the banks. Yeah, it's um, people will withdraw money from the banks and use that to soak up the bonds that the ECB is going to offload. Yeah, if you look at the US, which started their active quantitative tightening program, what, about 17 months ago in April 2022, we saw deposit outflows that particularly impacted those smaller US banks, their sort of funding and their liquidity and their income. And that all came to a head in March this year when there was that mini, mini crisis that resulted in the demise of several banks, including Silicon Valley Bank and all those sort of other banks that no one had heard of in, <laughs> in Europe until they collapsed and sent shockwaves around the world. So it does seem really peculiar that at this moment when we are just beginning to think that we might have avoided a recession and that, you know, the central banks have put up interest rates a lot. Inflation does seem at last to be coming under control, that they should be planning these really quite radical and potentially dangerous actions towards the banking sector to to kind of take away liquidity. It's a bit worrying, isn't it? It is a bit worrying, but the argument is, is inflation under control. It's still heavily elevated and yeah i think the ecb sort of thinking we've we've raised what 10 times in a row the deposit rate uh, the policy rate what else can we do mm -hmm. things things we've done so far aren't working we're gonna have to look at the other tools in our toolkit to, to try and get things back under control and it's a juggling act that i'm glad i'm not having to think about well i think there is some there's something to be said about the phrasing that SP used with the normalization of borrowing costs in that things are still low on a spread basis historically so we're just moving back to a, a spread area where things cost uh, risk is priced accordingly because all the excess liquidity has been taken out so it's not in terms of market dynamics it, it might not be the worst thing to happen that's true, Mike. But S&P did also point out that an effect of quantitative tightening would be that as bonds flow out of the ECB, 
a lot of them might end up in the banking sector. And particularly, banks in one country will tend to buy government bonds of their own government. And this brings us back to what was notoriously known as this bank sovereign doom loop, basically meaning that banks held a lot of their own government bonds. Um, And this was seen as a massive problem during the Eurozone financial crisis that followed the the 2008-9 crisis, when basically bank credit quality was was weighed down by poor sovereign credit quality, and um, there seemed no way to untangle them. And S&P pointed out that this this was a major catalyst of previous financial crises. So overall, I think we are looking at uh, quite a worrying picture. And, And one syndicate head said, bank funding funding conditions next year will be onerous and full of shadows. So just to finish us off, Frank, what, what do you think that means for how banks need to think about their funding at the moment? You know, if next year is going to be full of shadows and not not the best market to issue in, that same syndicate banker said, better to make take as much as you can, as soon as you can, for as long as you can, in whichever asset class is available. Well, thanks very much, Frank. There's clearly going to be lots um, for our financial institutions team to get their teeth into over the coming months. And we just hope that that stress in the market, which seems almost inevitable, does not cause too much damage to the wider economy. That's it from us today. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. As ever, it's available on Friday afternoons free on all the major podcast platforms, bringing you the most interesting capital market stories of the week. And you can find out more if you want to at globalcapital.com. See you next week. (laughs) 